A few months ago, three highly motivated gentlemen assailed Project Albumen in fine special operations style. They wanted the secrets this building so plainly keeps beneath its lush deco exterior. After weeks of planning, they got into their sexy black outfits and made their move. They blew open the back door and, no doubt, with a grand sense of empowerment and dominance, thrust mightily inside. Unfortunately, the entire main building of Project Albumen is a honey trap. The interior is very large and has intricate folded metal all around the walls. This falsely gives the impression of a large number of secret doors and passages. So it took them twenty-nine or so minutes to establish that there are, in fact, no exits. Shortly thereafter, they discovered that the Sanctum Sanctorum, the warm secret heart of Project Albumen, is in fact rather cold and unwelcoming, because it floods on a half-hour cycle with liquid nitrogen. The motivated gentlemen were removed somewhat later in the day, when they had thawed enough to be prized loose from the floor. All this I learned by way of welcoming chit-chat from a man called Richard P. Purvis, Lieutenant Richard P. Purvis. He drives right past the car park and carries on down a small access road behind some empty gas cylinders and a water tank. He stops a car next to a run-down porter cabin with foreman stenciled on the door and leads me inside. It is, of course, not a porter cabin. But the real entrance to Project Albumen. When this is revealed, I very nearly make the mistake of asking Richard P. Purvis whether, somewhere near here, there is a tank containing man-eating sharks into which enemy agents can be tipped by means of a trap door. I do not ask because I am very much afraid that the answer will be yes. This place has no sense of its own ridiculousness. And that self-regard is fortified by the fact that it kills people. The back of the porter cabin segues smoothly into a numinous, creamy corridor with curved walls and a grillwork floor, which winds away into the distance like something from an all-too-optimistic science fiction flick, circa 1972. A cheery woman in a uniform I do not recognize greets me and politely tells me to undress. I undress. The cheery woman does not look away. If my revealed genitals alarm her, she conceals her consternation very well. She takes my clothes and wanders off with them, and when I remain where I am, patiently tells me to follow. I pass through a door and into a room full of clinical personages in masks and gowns, and I am examined with considerably more thoroughness. Probed, X-rayed, shaved, showered, scraped, biopsied, deloused, disinfected, polygraphed, MRI'd, and then given some new nasty clothes, and finally sent onward and inward to the place of business of one General Copeson, who is either my best friend or my implacable enemy, and I am beginning to think the difference would be impossible to discern. Except that maybe he would have pressed the button instead of just showing it to me in that room back in Jarndyce. Lydia's father favors me with a piggy grin and says, "Welcome to the strength," as if I'm not some kind of conscript. I guess you're wondering why I've called you here. 
says General George, as we pass through a high-tech portcullis and into a hexagonal tunnel with something very like hair all over the walls, because he thinks he's seriously funny, and he wants me to think so too. I think so, at least enough that he nods in response to my wan little grin and doesn't have me put on a soggy cushion and strapped down. Truth is, you're one of my great white hopes, my boys, and girls, of course, but I call you all my boys. One of the best. Came through it all, head up, chin up, good kid. Crispin says you're clever, too. I stare at him. George Copeson is misting up. The ogre of electrical death has a tear in his eye. He wants to be loved. He thinks bygones can be bygones, and I can join his twisted research family and marry, not Lydia, one of his daughters. General George Copeson wants to play paterfamilias. It was bad back there, he says. We had a quota. They said, find us this many terrorists. We know they're out there. So I was playing catch, saving the best. You're one of the best, of course. One of my boys. I wonder briefly what happened to the others. Tried? Held indefinitely? Released? Forever suspect? Or just vanished? I'm furious with him for making me glad that I'm one of his boys. He throws an arm around me like my skin isn't crawling, and I don't want to be sick every time he twinkles at me, and he walks me along another big science fiction corridor towards whatever is at the centre of this spooky ant farm. The corridor is lit in some manner which defies my immediate analysis, and therefore I am unable to speculate what possible effect it might have on any shrews or shrew-like animals, save that I suspect they would be rendered placid and wide-eyed with wonder by the soft, reassuring gleam of this walkway. It is devoid of right angles and has uneven foam spikes protruding from it in odd places to deaden the sound and make the whole thing undetectable to methods of espionage whose theoretical basis I am not cleared for, but which clearly require symmetry or solidity, a line of speculation I abandon in case I should figure out something I would have to be killed for knowing. At last, we round a corner, and instead of another asymmetrical door or tangled staircase, there is an ill-proportioned room filled with men and women doing the kinds of things that produce grave expressions and thoughtful lip-chewing. Several of them, against the prevailing wisdom of the dental profession, are chewing pens or pencils, and of these, one has a great smear of ink in the middle of his lower lip and it is to him that General George is taking me. That's the guy, George Copeson says, all hushed and loved up. The number one, clever like you and me and all these others together, he designed Albumen, made this place. You're working with him? This last as if the man were the Rolling Stones or this year's Audrey Hepburn. I'm underground in an insectoid paranoid, futuristic maze, and my last encounter with my boss involved non-consensual torture games. But I'm going to be working with the man who created an entire architectural style for use as a lethal weapon. Yes, sir, George, that makes it all okay.
Despite George Copeson's urgency, I stop to look around and take in what is happening to my life. Perhaps he takes this as awe. The room is painted in shades of grey, and the ceiling is covered in the same irregular foam spikes as the corridor. The desks, like everything else, have been shaped to avoid sharp edges, which unfortunately means they are uneven, and the scribbled papers on them are all slowly falling off onto the floor. Research assistants bend and pick them up once every two minutes or so in a repeating pattern, which I assume must be determined by the height of the pile of paper, the friction between individual sheets, and even the amount of graphite or ink scrawled across them. In other words, the more prolific the boffin, the more likely he is to find his best idea under the leg of his chair. One genius. I have no doubt that they are all genii of one stripe or another. Has hung her notes from clotheslines strung over her workspace. This solves the storage problem, but unfortunately she is short-sighted and can't see the ones at the far end from where she is sitting. So her day is a sort of geek version of a step aerobics class: sit, work, check figures, stand, run to the far end, run back, sit, repeat. Armageddonetics get healthy the super weapon way. In the approximate, or for all I know, the mathematically exact center of the room, there is a perspex tank filled with a clear liquid, and at the bottom of it is a fake battleground with toy soldiers in artificial grass and a collection of not-to-scale military vehicles like the ones I had when Gonzo and I played World War Two in the garden of Gonzo's house. And chased the geese with firecrackers. The guy with the inky lips, the only person with more paper and more space than the aerobics woman, is called Derek, or at least is to be called Derek, because this is etched on an oblong slice of metal which occupies the upper left panel of his white coat. Thus, Professor Derek. If this appellation seems truncated, appearances are quite accurate. A strip of white cloth tape or self-adhesive bandage has been applied with precision, but without reference to aesthetics, across the nether part of the badge. I am, despite myself, darkly fascinated by an organization which requires its assets to label themselves, while at the same time demanding that they conceal this information from one another. Professor Derrick looks at George Copeson and receives a genial nod. Okay, people, positions, please. Like a rather sloppy chorus line in rehearsal, assorted people with bell curve smashing brains take refuge behind screens and peer through scopes. Paper is shuffled to safe positions on chairs and in box files. Professor Derrick glowers at everyone until they are all ready. Let's go. And testing protocol: battlefield. The test area is flooded to allow precise measurement of volume displaced. Charging, firing. He ambles over to a small bank of switches and pushes one, then another, and finally, against a backdrop of spinning red lights and klaxons, a third. There is quiet. There is anticipation. There is a sudden wet splash. The side of the tank is gone. A perfect circle, bitten out of it, 
along with the slice of the mock battlefield and all the little soldiers. The water, or whatever it is, inside the tank immediately acts in accordance with physical laws regarding surface tension, fluid dynamics, and gravity. My shoes get wet, and George Copeson, now the dampest general in the services, says, "Oh, for Christ's sakes!" and several words which he assumes Lydia does not know. Although, in fact, to judge by my recollections of Gonzo's lengthy and in-depth apology, she not only knows them but could teach a fairly advanced course in the particulars of certain subsidiary activities, not actually an integral part of the original unmentionable verbs, but considered excellent accompaniments by those with relevant skills and experience. All this distracts somewhat from the realization of what we have just witnessed. Which is a magic button that can apparently destroy matter in a specific and alarmingly personal way, at which point George Copeson announces that I will henceforth consider myself in the unconventional weapons and tactics industry. He implies that this is a market sector which will shortly see some expansion, that I will be getting in on the ground floor of a pretty good thing. He further enthuses that, owing to my youth and resilience under pressure, having a bag put over my head and being told I may at any moment be used as the filament in a human light bulb, I am also suitable for military training. Without Marlubich to watch and guide me, and in the absence of good lunches, I have wound up in a dangerous place. I am gone to soldier. What I'm about to tell you," says Professor Derrick the following day, "may make me sound like a crazy person. So I need you to remember to bear in mind very carefully that I have an IQ of such monstrous proportions that if, for the sake of argument, I were totally insane, if the palace of my intellect were a scary ivy-covered mansion in Louisiana with peeling paint and dead flowers and a garden full of murdered corpses planted by a man named Jerry Lee Boudin, I am so much more intelligent than anybody else you will ever meet that there would be no way for anyone to tell. He glances around and finds that this comparison has not had the intended effect. He sighs. I'm not crazy," he says more directly. "I just deal with physics, which is so complex that it basically sounds, outside of peer-reviewed journals, like nonsense, like contracts and tax law." He looks at everyone again, and whatever he sees must be more to his liking. "You're all familiar with geeks as a genus," he continues. But what you need to get your heads round is that I am such a massive geek, such a totally terrifying concentration of nerdhood, that I have actually cracked the code for human social behavior using mathematics. I am able to interact with people on what appears to be a casual, non-scientific footing, and even get laid like a regular guy because I'm made an intense study of behavioral and statistical ethnographics, and I am constantly running a series of predictive and quantitative calculations in my head, which provides me with acceptable human responses within the normative band and counterfeits qualitative judgment so well the difference is within the margin of error. On the most primitive level, for example. 
I know from the precise number of nods you are making and the muscles in your neck and face whether you are actually paying attention or whether you have decided that this part of the induction is not relevant to you personally and started thinking about something else. I know that I have a series of options regarding those of you currently thinking about last night's sexual adventures or the football game this evening, and that these include A. Hoping you will get smart and pay attention B. Addressing the issue directly on an individual or group basis by pointing out that I am currently your only chance of a decent rating and hence a job at the end of all this, but more immediately of your physical survival should we go to war. C. Mentioning the whole thing in passing as an organic outgrowth of my opening remarks on the understanding that you are smart enough to take a hint and D. Shouting at you, which I gather is the preferred military solution.